Welcome to a special edition of the Church Times podcast, recorded on Friday the 6th of October in Armenia. I'm Francis Martin, a reporter for the Church Times, and in this episode I talk with the Archbishop of Canterbury at the end of his trip to Rome and the South Caucasus. At the end of September, Archbishop Justin Welby departed London for Rome. By the time he returned to the UK eight days later, he had visited three further countries, Azerbaijan, Georgia and Armenia. The South Caucasus is a region long riven by conflict and currently suffering a refugee crisis after Azerbaijan attacked the contested enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh on 19th of September, leading to at least 200 fatalities and a mass exodus of some 100,000 Armenian Karabakhs. As part of the trip, Archbishop Welby met with Pope Francis at the Vatican, as well as refugees from Nagorno-Karabakh now living in temporary accommodation provided by the Armenian church. He spoke with political leaders and church leaders, young Georgians who have created a new Anglican congregation in Tbilisi, Muslim and Jewish leaders in Georgia and Azerbaijan, and many, many others, in what he dubbed a pilgrimage of listening. You can read full and exclusive accounts of the trip in the Church Times. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can avail yourself of a special offer, 10 issues for just £10, by visiting churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Online and in print, the Church Times offers in-depth coverage of church news at home and abroad, as well as arts, features, comment and more. Archbishop Justin Welby, thank you so much for talking with me. We've been on quite some trip, covering four countries in a matter of eight days. Yes. Could you start, perhaps, by giving just two or three words to summarise what you take away from each of those four places we visited? Rome, the immensity of the church universal praying together. Azerbaijan, the challenge of discussing with a leader who has just won a war and knowing what to ask and how hard to challenge. Georgia, the pain of a country separated for 15 years from part of its territory by invasion that was illegal. Armenia, the agony of powerlessness. Thank you. That gives us a lot of avenues into conversation. It does. Uh, Let's start in Rome, perhaps, then, at the beginning. What state is Catholic-Anglican relations in? Where do you go away feeling about it after that that visit, that meeting uh, with the Pope? I think as with many ecumenical relations today, it is in a state of significant change. I think Catholic-Anglican relations have moved in the years since... Uh, Michael Ramsey and Pope Paul VI met, and even before that, the years since Archbishop Fisher met unofficially with uh, John XXIII, from theological dialogue 
to deep personal relationship as well as theological dialogue, to which was added the development of common mission to the needy and the poorest, and which now encompasses an ecumenism of service, an ecumenism of facing the challenges of the modern world. You had a lengthy conversation with the Pope, private conversation. How much does that personal relationship you have with him mean to you? Personally, it means the world. He is someone I pray for every day, who I love dearly, in whom I find a wisdom that is both reassuring and deeply encouraging. And particularly this time, not in the personal conversation, but in the vigil on the Saturday evening, with the widest group of churches one can imagine, from all parts of Orthodoxy to Pentecostal and everything between. I think I saw most clearly the Pope in his role as universal primate. Catapulting forward to Baku and Azerbaijan, you had a meeting with a rather different character, the president of Azerbaijan, uh, Ilham Aliyev. Mm. What did you take away from that meeting? Were you encouraged by what he said? Yes, I was at the time. But with the encouragement was also a very large pinch of salt at the time and since. He's just won a war that, in his words, achieved all of Azerbaijan's territorial ambitions of reintegrating Karabakh into Azerbaijan which is long recognized in international law as part of Azerbaijan. But there is always, in one's thinking, that anxiety that in the exhilaration of military victory, there will be the temptation which is succumbed to of pushing further. And that was the main content of the discussion, because there must be a move that means that never again do Azerbaijanis and Armenians kill each other on the battlefield, as we knew in 1945 between, say, France and Germany or Britain and Germany. If there is to be a secure future, with happiness, with security, with economic prosperity and flourishing for the poorest in both countries. I'm going to jump, if I might, to this morning now Mm. and the meeting with refugees from Nagorno-Karabakh. In the light of the conversations you had, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment, does that put a different complexion on your meeting with President Aliyev? Yes, in a very predictable way, 
I wanted to meet refugees as I have so often in the past in places of war because it brings the atrocity of war right in front of you, face to face. The woman whose face I will not forget, a nurse whose husband was killed in the 2020 war and could not contain her tears. The boy of 16 who did not tell me, but I think told you, that his brother was killed a couple of weeks back in the latest invasion. The older people who spoke of the Turks coming as they did in 1915 and the great killing of Armenians of that year. When you listen to that from people who have just fled for their lives, the theory of geopolitics and war takes on a completely different colour and texture. You can feel every thread. And in feeling the threads, one is again gripped by the appalling nature of war. So, yes, it changes the complexion. It changes the understanding. It renews one's horror, which is a rightful horror. It strikes me on this trip that there's a there's balance, perhaps, between you're having conversations like this morning with, with ordinary people, ordinary people in an extraordinary situation. Mm. And then you're also meeting with, with presidents and, and mm. diplomats, politicians, church leaders as well. And, and from those people, you hear all sorts of different narratives, especially mm. across these different countries uh, that we visited. How do you balance those narratives and those people, those types of people you're meeting in your mind, without, without it becoming an overwhelming um, loss of your own clear picture of, of what you think and, and, and what the right thing is uh, to do and to say? First, never imagine you've got a clear picture. You, the first thing in listening is to be aware of how little one knows. When you listen to people who've lived here all their lives, they still have often mixed pictures. So acknowledge one's ignorance. Second, compartmentalize between the leaders and the refugees or the wounded soldiers or the traumatized children. Compartmentalize. Hold each conversation in a separate compartment and do not try to synthesize because in synthesizing you'll oversimplify and you'll lose sight of the humanity of the question. Thirdly, hold the poorest and the most vulnerable at the top of your mind. That's how I do it to the extent I ever managed to do it. You mentioned at the very start of the interview uh, your, the thing you take away from Georgia and you mentioned displaced people and these, mm. these two parts of, of Georgia that were de facto annexed, let's say, and, and uh, ruled as 
autonomous uh, states, but with Russian backing, South Ossetia, Abkhazia. Can you reflect perhaps on how, what you took away from visiting that that border region uh, with the patrols from the EU? I was very, we were all very fortunate uh, to be invited and accepted by the EU monitoring mission, who I think we were all intensely impressed by, their calmness, their measured and disciplined approach. Um, what I took away with was something I've often thought of before and is probably fairly banal. It's the absurdity of these lines we draw in the ground. Literally, as you will remember, we stood on top of an empty hilltop with a ploughed line in front of us. And the other side was Ossetia, mm. occupied by Russians, FSB. And this side was Georgia, you know, uh, a democracy that had lost the other side. And it was literally a ploughed line on top of a field. It's not even a river or a mountain range or a sea. And you think, why are people in the village, in the valley, where the line goes straight through people's gardens, halfway through their gardens, why are they suffering because of this absurdity of human greed and ambition and pride and power. And why could the local FSB chief say, look, draw the line round the village, not through someone's garden? Why is there such cruelty? These are banal questions, but that it brings it home to me. I don't know if you remember when we were standing on that path with a bunch of barbed wire, um, um, coils of barbed wire across the path, which used to be the main path through the village. And you get halfway through, the tr trees are the same, one side is the other, everything's the same, except it's a different country. And if you cross it, you'll be detained. I think that absurdity really hit me afresh in that part of the visit. It's very hard to see easy answers at the moment, but one wanted to say something ridiculous like repent, <laughs> you know, turn away from this idiocy. You talk about idiocy and the um, absurdity of, of differences. Do you sometimes think that the disagreements between churches can descend into absurdity or at, when as the um, papal nuncio to the Caucasus uh, said to me at one point in, in, in Tbilisi and after the service in Tbilisi you know, there's, there's far more that unites us than combines us than divides think, us yeah. sorry. <laughs> sorry do you think there is uh, an absurdity in, in some of those um, yes. breakdowns of relationships Yes, there is, because you've put your finger on it. It's a breakdown of relationship. It's about human relationship, not the surpassing glory of God, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself 
and became a slave for our sake and died on a cross. And before that gigantic, enormous, overwhelming truth, everything is made small, if we look at it rightly. And we should start from that perspective, all of us. I'm talking to myself as well. Uh, we should start from that perspective. But we're so easily mesmerised by the close-up of what seems like the enormous issue until we lift our eyes and see the glory of God. And the issue is put back into its perspective. And, yes, idiocy, and I think of my own idiocy. I'm not judging others. Is that part of what you're trying to do, to, to, to try and encourage people to see those things of greater uniting importance when you're having meetings with politicians and politicians on one day who disagree dramatically with politicians on the next day. And you do the same in, in England, of course, as well. Yes. Um, I think that's what we are trying to do, to be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of reconciliation. And then you have to balance that and probably one of my, you know, you can always see the other side. You have to balance that with the fact that what to me may be an idiocy is to the person in the centre of it the most gigantic, enormous thing. And they are a brother or sister in Christ when we're talking within church arguments. They are a creation of Christ, someone for whom Christ died when we're talking about anything or anyone in creation. And the call is you know, not to judge them, but to find a way of showing them Christ, of showing them the God who reaches out to enable them to find each other as fellow creations. Your position in the world if we can, <laughs> we can put it so grandly. Um, your position in the world um, on this trip is very interesting to me from, from observing it at, at, at close quarters. And it's, it strikes me that um, in, several, in several instances, your role as the head of the Anglican Communion was, was put forward first. I, I noticed, for example, in press reports in Azerbaijan, um, local press reports, they described you as the head of the Anglican Church, not uh, head of the Church of England. The Anglican Communion and headship thereof has been a... a complicated. It's been a complicated issue, to say the least. Um, does that cause you any concern if, as is possible, and you've spoken about it yourself, the leadership of the Anglican Communion and the leadership of the Church of England could be, perhaps, in some ways, separated... Do you think that's something that would then make a difference and, and have a deleterious effect on the ability of an Archbishop of Canterbury and all the head of a, the leader of the Anglican Communion to communicate on the global scale? You're exactly right to ask the question, because that's been on my mind. It's been brought home to me at this visit. Uh, I think the answer is if we do it right, then it, sh there will be, it should not have a bad effect. In fact, it should have a wonderful effect if we do it right. If we manage to demonstrate that it is possible to have 
grave differences to love one another, to worship God, and by action and word to share the good news of Jesus Christ all at the same time and to move away from um, a colonial style structure to something that is very clearly Catholic with a small c, universal with a small c, with a universal. And um, that is reinforced, but it's this trip has, as you rightly put your finger on it, pointed that out very, very clearly, uh, pointed out very clearly that, that is an extremely difficult challenge because the brand of Anglicanism is very closely associated with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, you can't just change those things instantly and expect everyone to have a different attitude. It's, it's, there's a huge communication thing. More than that, there is a substantive thing of being obedient to what God is calling and then trusting in God's actions and providence. Something else that's, again, come home to me from, from being on this trip is to see the role that your team around you plays. How important are they to, to what you do? Well, of course you'll have noticed the obsequious um, respect in which I am held at all points. I have indeed, yes. Yeah, so, well, yes. then you really aren't in the right job. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I rely so heavily on those who are good enough to work with me. Um, and I'm not always easy to work with. Um, in the sense of their expertise, Jeremy Morris, with his absolutely encyclopedic understanding of other churches and of church history, uh, Charles Reed, with his profound thinking about geopolitics and international relations, and so on and so forth. Uh, the comms people, Siobhan, on this occasion who warn me when I'm about to do something incredibly stupid. Not that I always pay attention, but they do warn me. And they are all very, very good, and I depend on them hugely and enormously, which is one reason I'm very upset when they're criticised. Because I, you know, it's fair enough to criticise me, it's not fair enough to criticise them. And um, I've been very fortunate over the last ten and a half years to have worked with exceptionally good people and continue to be surrounded by very skilled and brilliant people. I think anyone who thinks they know the answers and can, as it were, stand alone in this role is in cloud cuckoo land. If you're the best theologian in history, you may not understand the geopolitics or the challenges of modern science or the psychology. The You may not have the emotional um, intelligence. If you're a wonderful church historian, you may not understand other forms of history, you know, and so on and so forth. And therefore the team is always going to be better than the Archbishop by themselves. You mentioned the obsequiousness of your team, ironically. How important is that, particularly on a trip like this, where, you know, you are treated with a, with a great deal of respect by mm. a great number of people. Mm. Um, you know, there, is, there is much uh, reference to you as your grace, which I know uh, is something that perhaps doesn't happen quite so much 
when you're in England. Does, it, does the team keep you grounded? Is that a necessary yes. part as oh, well? Yes. And they're also a release of tension. I mean, banter, jokes, teasing enables you to change gear between seeing a president and seeing a refugee, which is a huge change of gear. It enables you to, uh, the sort of lightness of touch from them enables you to cope with moments of deep inadequacy, which come fairly frequently. So we're, it's the final evening as we speak. Yep. Flying early in the morning. And I know in a couple of days you've got a House of Bishops meeting. Mm-hmm. A big one. Yes. How difficult is it to go from, from here to there, to jump right back into conversations about very different topics on very different scales? Normally, I find it um, oddly easy to do. Occasionally, it goes completely wrong. But normally, I find it quite easy to do. Um, because between now and then, I will have read my way through all the papers again for next Monday, and therefore sort of reset, done a mental reset for a very different conversation. But at their heart, both Monday and this week, in all its varied aspects, is about obedience to Christ and love for Christ and love for the people of Christ, and love for those who don't know Christ. That's what it's about. And that binds these issues together. So the constant question is not what is expedient. How do I make this interview with President X a success, or Prime Minister Y a success? Or how do I make this little intervention I'm going to make in the House of Bishops, how do I make that a success? The issue is, what is right before God? How do I, recognising that I will be judged by God at the end of all things, how do I act in a way in which, at the very least, I know that I may have been wrong, but I haven't been just playing politics? And what is the House of Bishops going to decide on Monday? I don't know. Um, Genuinely, it is the House that decides. I think the House is going to be looking at the very complicated issues of how, while motivating and holding the Church together, holding our ecumenical relationships, interfaith relationships, intra-communion relationships together, we act in a way that within England is most faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the question. Uh, How do we serve the unity of Christ, which is upheld so powerfully in the New Testament, and at the same time act rightly and obediently to the Holy Spirit in a culture that is so radically different to the one we're sitting in even here in uh, uh, Yerevan in Armenia 
let alone the culture of far-flung places around the world where Anglicans are worshipping as we speak. Thank you. And finally, you've received various gifts on this journey and a remarkable array of things. But what is the one thing, and it needn't be a physical thing, will you attach the most value to when you take it home with you? Uh, my memory of meeting the refugees. That's easy. That's been the biggest gift I've been given. That they gave me the gift of their time of being willing to meet me. That they were willing to talk. That the church arranged it. That's a precious gift. Archbishop, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Francis, and thank you for being with us. <laughs>